Jamie Reagan, and we are in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and you are listening to Beyond the Box Podcast. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the the Box. Welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It is always great to be back with you. Today, I have an awesome guest that I'm really excited about, Jamie Arpenrisi, who's actually a part of our Beyond the Box community online. And Jamie has written an excellent book called The Cost of Community, Jesus, St. Francis, and Life in the Kingdom, published by InterVarsity Press. Excellent book. I've got a well-worn copy in my hand right now that's got uh, pink highlighting and orange highlighting and yellow highlighting and lots of little notes scribbled in the side margins. It is a great book on the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, what it means to live in community. And today we're going to talk a lot about intentional community, co-housing, issues of justice. This is just an excellent conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So let's jump on that roller coaster and get right in the conversation with Jamie Arpenrisi. Well, folks, welcome back to Beyond the Box. As always, it is great to be back with you. And I am very excited to be joined by my special guest, Jamie Arpenrisi, all the way up from the North Country, Canada. <laughs> Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we, we feel like you've been around for a long time, but this is the first time of actually talking to you in person. So welcome, brother. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Jamie has, um, he's written, gosh, you've written all sorts of, uh, you've written parts of books, <laughs> of a lot of different books, yep. chapters here and there. But your book, The Cost of Community, is what we're going to talk about tonight. Jesus St. Francis and Life in the Kingdom. And folks, I have my well-worn copy in hand, my highlighted, scribbled-in copy, and so I've pulled a bunch of notes. We're just going to go in all sorts of directions. Um, Jamie has written the book, which we want to talk about, but also something that that you are involved in that I feel like a lot of people are going to be interested in is intentional community. In Manitoba, I believe it is? That's correct. Winnipeg, Manitoba. Winnipeg, Manitoba. And for all of us... United States people, you'll have to bear with us. We're still trying to get our geography right. So Manitoba would be north of? North Dakota. North of North Dakota. Wow, that's cold. Yeah. Oh, yes. Winnipeg is the uh, the coldest city in the world with a population over half a million. Oh, wow. We, we had the last week, this this last week, we had some of our first really cold weather. With the wind chill, we were about minus 42, minus 43. Holy mackerel. Brother, move <laughs> south. <laughs> my my wife is Australian, and uh, it was certainly a sacrifice for the Lord for her to be here. <laughs> no doubt. She's feeling it for sure. My goodness. Well, of course, the book is entitled The Cost of Community. So I guess the first obvious question 
would be, why do you believe that community has a cost? Talk some about that cost and, and uh, why you believe that community should cost us something. Well, mainly, I, I believe that community costs us something, not in the sense of like, uh, I don't want it to be a, a punitive cost. It's not like, you know, we, it's not the self-flagellation of some uh, of the monastic movements where, you know, if you, if you just suffer enough, you can, you can achieve something good. But rather, it's something that is, is worth pursuing. It's that pearl of great price. It's, it's, I mean, the closest thing you can, you can compare it to is, is family. And, and we all know that fam- those of us with families know that it's, it can be the best thing in the world, but it is always hard work. Mm. Um, and, and that means uh, placing our own interests and our own desires uh, second to, to that of others. And so that, that costs us. But it's, it's a cost that uh, it's not a cost that's exacted, again, out of, of retribution or, or, or some form of, some form of um, suffering to gain, but rather that, that sense of, of I'd be willing to give anything for this. And, and, mm. uh, but it, but it, does, it does cost. Yeah, yeah. In, in your particular area, you live in the West End of Manitoba, and you say in the book that you moved into an area where your neighbors were gangbangers and prostitutes. Now, Jamie, there's a lot of people out there that are going, why the heck would a white middle-class Canadian boy move into the inner city intentionally next to gangbangers and prostitutes? What were you thinking? I should say that that, that reference to gangbangers and prostitutes is somewhat in air quotes because <laughs> when, you, when you come in from the out, I mean, they, they were literally gang houses and, and, and sex workers in my neighborhood. But when you come in from the outside, that, those are the labels that you define those people by. And, and it, was, it was as shocking as, as your question uh, suggests to, to our friends and family. Um, but it's interesting that those labels fell away in time and they became neighbors, not always good neighbors, but they did become neighbors. Um, but the reason, the reason we went is there was a sense of my wife and I both have this deep sense of calling that um, if, if our faith was going to have meaning, it was going to have meaning among the kinds of people that, that Jesus spent time with. And um, prior to moving to Winnipeg, um, we lived in Vancouver and worked a lot in Vancouver's uh, downtown East side, which is uh, Canada's, uh, what we consider Canada's poorest postal code. Um, you know, HIV is pandemic there because of, uh, mainly because of heroin use. And um, uh, what happened was for me, the turning point for me was that we were in Vancouver and uh, the nine 11 attacks in New York happened. And we came to our, our office. I was working with, with youth with a mission, YWAM, which people are going to go a YWAMer on beyond the box. It's such a shock, but uh, <laughs> But anyway, I was. We, we, and You're we a beyond the box Y whammer. How's that? Ex- exactly, exactly. We're that cousin no one talks about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we came to the office to to do a prayer time for the people affected, impacted. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But as we came to the office, we noticed in our parking lot that there was an ambulance and a police car, and we went over and and learned that a, a young panhandler from our neighborhood had overdosed in heroin and died under under the overhang of our building. And we were a bit shocked and surprised, but then we went inside and, and prayed. And, and I realized that there was, a, for me, I'm not speaking about my colleagues, but for me, there was this disconnect between the suffering that happened out there and the suffering that happened at our door. And that was a turning point for me to say, okay, I, if my faith is going to have meaning, um, 
I, I need to put it to the test in a context where Jesus put it to the test. So it wasn't even out of some sense of altruistic service to others. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a thinker, and when I have an idea or belief, I have to test it or it has no value to me. And so um, we decided to move to Winnipeg. It's closer to where a lot of my family live. And, and we, we were invited to move into the West End neighborhood of Winnipeg by a, uh, a, a Baptist minister named Harry Lahotsky. Harry Lahotsky was saved in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, as a, uh, he was overdosed on drugs, and a Christian police officer saved his life, and, and he ended up becoming a pastor in, in our inner city neighborhood. And um, he, was, uh, um, he died a few years ago from pancreatic cancer, but uh, he was a, uh, a, an ardent follower of Walter Rauschenbosch. I, I don't know if you're familiar with one of the fathers of the social justice. Yeah. And, and he was very, he was a pastor in our neighborhood, but he was a prophet as well. And he, he challenged the injustices systemic in, in, in the city and in the province. And, and he had invited us into his neighborhood. And he said, basically, if you want to minister to people in my neighborhood, good luck. If you want to become a neighbor and, and, and live among us, we will do everything in our power to make it happen. And he did. Let, let's clarify a little bit because I, me being from, you know, a Southern Baptist background and then the charismatic move and the word of faith move and all these things. When you say the word prophet, you're saying something totally different than what a lot of our listeners are hearing. So yeah. I just want, I want to clarify that for them that you're not talking about, you're not talking about the charismatic version of a prophet. Tell them what you mean when you say prophet. Yeah, a good point. I, I, when I speak of prophet, I speak of the, in the sense that is most commonly referenced in, in scripture. And it's those people who, who spoke to the injustices Primarily uh, to, to God's people first and foremost, but then also to to those in power, positions of power. And they spoke um, they spoke about wherever shalom was not uh, being lived into, where where mm-hmm. peace and justice were slipping. And you see strong emphasis on the poor, specifically widows and orphans. And so people who who speak um, uh, speak on behalf of God, not and again the charismatic language there. I grew up with some of that too, but more in the sense that they 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 call back and sometimes strongly. Uh, God's people to to live um, into that shalom. That, that's what I mean by that. He 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 saw the systems that contributed to poverty as uh, affronts to to God and God's mission. And so when I say prophet, that's what I mean. Yeah, you, you talk in the book. Um, you say that proclaiming and living the gospel were tied intrinsically together, and it seems like that's kind of what I'm hearing you say is that for you you got to a place where you couldn't continue to proclaim the gospel without um, you couldn't proclaim it with your mouth without somehow your life proclaiming it without living in that. Talk about that. Um, maybe that dichotomy that, that you found in your own life and, and trying to bridge that gap. Well, I, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I my by nature, I'm something of a, of, of a thinker, you know, an intellectual. I mean, I, 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 ideas mean so much to me. I, I, my, my wife has to constantly get me to thin out the books in my study because I'm losing space because I love to learn. And, and it could be anything from, you know, quantum physics to theology. I, I, I have a broad interest. But I also recognize that uh, all too often I would see people who would, who, would be, who would exemplify or who would be placed on a pedestal as exemplifying those people who were most Christian, who were, who were Christians to be admired. And, and they were good people, but they were often admired because they were really good teachers of really good theology. Yeah. But there was nothing necessarily distinctly Christian about their life. Well, I shouldn't say Christian. There's, well, yeah, Christian. They, they, were, they were very moral, but they weren't necessarily very 
again, this is going to sound harsh, but Christ-like. And I thought, well, why is there a disconnect? You know, I know a lot of people who aren't Christians who are very moral. Right. Um, uh, and, and, and so where that difference is. And so I, I began to, I began to explore and I had wonderful parents, even, this is, even at a very young age, my parents would allow me to explore different things and, 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 uh, put them to the test. And so, and that really is what led me to St. Francis, um, mm. because St. Francis is someone who really, to me, exemplifies uh, bringing that dichotomy together and, and, and reintegrating it. Um, you often hear the quote, um, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. You familiar with that quote? Oh, yeah. People, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they, 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 they attribute that, people attribute that to St. Francis all the time. He didn't, in fact, say that. I, I want to quickly pull up the actual quote that he said, because it's, it's, um, it's very Franciscan in nature, but it doesn't quite capture what he actually said. He, he actually said a couple of other things, and one of them was, it's no use walking anywhere to preach unless, you're walking, unless our walking is our preaching. Mm, wow, that's good. And wow. the other one is, he said, as for me, I desire this privilege from the Lord that never may I have any privilege from man except to do reverence to all and to convert the world by obedience to the holy rule rather by example than by word. Mm, mm. And, and the holy and, rule being love your neighbor as yourself, I'm assuming. Absolutely. You know, yeah. the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and, and the teachings of Jesus were the central, um, they were the defining texts for, for Francis's whole faith. Now, Francis was a preacher. In fact, he was a bit of an anomaly in, in that era for the church because he wasn't a priest. He never became a priest, but he was given a dispensation to preach. And so he, he was known for his preaching, and he would preach in open air. You know, he created the first nativity. Um, and, and, but at the same time, his preaching had authority because the people saw that he lived what he, he taught. Mm. And this was especially poignant in a time where the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church that he was a part of, was, was quite corrupt. Um, and so it was a contrast. Um, so that, that, that's what drew me to St. Francis, is that he seemed to be able to bring those two together. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with the life of St. Francis as far as um really, I mean, other than other than the garden statues. <laughs> I think everybody knows the garden statues, but um you know, Francis being known for simplicity and for poverty and, you know, uh some some of those kinds of things are really a, a simplistic a simplistic faith but also a simplistic life where he turned from his father's wealth, stripped himself naked in court, uh, basically said, you know, I, I don't, I don't want your riches. I just want to love people. So with that in mind and, and Francis being an example of simplicity, what do you think that that means for a 21st century believer in Jesus? Someone that's trying to follow Jesus. I mean, Fran we look at Francis and Francis seems to be, wow, almost, um, I think for many of us, especially that live in the first world of affluence and, um, you know, all the technological advances that we have and all of the comforts that we have, how do we follow that example that Francis set, that, that he set of simple living without, like you said, descending into a self-flagellating um, morality, I guess? Now, that's, that's really important to, to learn about St. Francis, and there's kind of three dynamics that we need to, to, to understand if we're going to answer that question. The first is that 
um, and thankfully this is changing with new scholarship and, and, and such, but after St. Francis died it, and, and it didn't take long for him, I mean, his order grew huge before he had died and he was almost put aside before he even died, like as a, you know, almost an embarrassment to the order by some, but after he died, uh, some members of the uh, leaders of the order, they destroyed all the biographies about Francis's life and then introduced a singular authorized air quotes, uh, uh. biography that kind of Boy, this almost, sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and it made him a bit more superhuman and a bit less uh, edgy. And, and again, according to our previous definition, a little less prophetic. Now, thankfully, those older uh, biographies weren't completely eradicated and they eventually emerged. And we have a, a quite a, actually a good picture of Francis. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. A lot of people will read different versions of the story of St. Francis. And they'll be like, this guy is, you know, far beyond anything I could ever emulate. The second thing to remember is that Francis himself acknowledged he went too far. Um, like he, he didn't, he didn't believe that suffering for the sake of suffering would make him holy. Um, he was very distinct in that sense. Like he, he, he embraced simplicity and poverty because he saw, he, he saw Christ in the poor and he wanted to be with Christ. Um, but he did like, uh, for example, he'd be walking along the road and say, it's like winter in Italy. Well, it wasn't Italy yet, but in Italy and, and he would think of a woman <laughs> and he would throw himself into an icy ditch full of water to like cool his jets down and, oh. uh, or, or, or throw himself into a bush full of thorns or, you know, he didn't want to enjoy rich food too much. So he'd sprinkle ashes on his food. And, and, you know, like in the, in that era, that wasn't unusual. I mean, you know, it, for someone who followed his calling, um, it sounds strange for us, but he died very young <laughs> and, um, on his deathbed, he repented to, to his body for treating it that way. Mm. Um, he, he referred to his body as brother ass, which I thought is really very fitting because <laughs> um, it was so stubborn. And, uh, um, but uh, as I like to say, Francis uh, repented for kicking his own ass for far too long. <laughs> you know? and, and so he, he even himself would say you know, his, his choices weren't the best example. Um, but the third thing to remember is that what makes Francis' example so important to follow and to emulate is exactly those things, his imperfection. You know, the fact that he went too far sometimes, the fact that he made mistakes, the fact that, you know, he, he, was, he was extreme uh, and, and regretted it later um, because it makes him human. It, yeah. We realize that the only thing that really separates us from, from Francis uh, in, in, in those choices is the willingness to, to make mistakes and to, to embrace our beliefs in action. Um, as another example, and this is purely theory by some historians, and I might offend some of my Franciscan and, and, and Catholic friends in saying this, but as you, you may or may not know, Francis was the first person to uh, exhibit the stigmata, the wounds of Christ on his body. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, that was obviously put into a very significant part of his biography as, you know, he's manifesting the, the wounds of Christ. He was referred to, to other people as the second Christ or even the last Christian. Um, but some people theorize that his care for the lepers uh, caused him to contract leprosy and that that was actually what the stigmata was. It was uh, lesions of, of leprosy. And to me, that's actually a more beautiful image than, than, yeah. uh, the, than stigmata. Those are the wounds of Christ because he took upon himself um, their, their suffering to, just so that he could express care and love for them. We, 
you know, I'm a huge fan of, of Richard Beck, who you've had on before, but this was Francis in that moment was a man who was free from the fear of death yeah, and, yeah. and could love radically. Wow. So good. So good. Wow. The, the, uh, in, in talking about the cost of community and, and, and what it's cost, what's been its cost for you? What, what's been the cost for you to live in intentional community with others? And let's talk about that some. Um, intentional community, uh, co-housing, some of these things. We, I know nowadays in the emergent movement, in the more progressive movement, um, the, the phrase intentional community is thrown out there a lot, and it's almost been reduced to, and I say reduced intentionally, huh, no pun intended. I say reduced to um, intentional community has been reduced to co-housing. And while I think that's a huge part of especially the neo-monastic movement, can you talk some about um, co-housing, intentional community, where they intersect, and maybe um, Jesus is calling for us to one or both of those? Good, good question. Yeah, I, I, I tend to to want to always push back when I hear people reduce uh, intentional community to co-housing. I mean, that is its most um, visible expression, perhaps, and its most um, distinct expression, therefore it stands out. And, and I think it's important when I actually think far more people need to be considering, even if only for a season, to to experience it. And, and talk about co-housing, Jamie, because there's a lot of people okay. out there that might not know what co-house, what we're even talking about. It, even that, there is such a diversity. For, for 20 years now, I've been doing intentional community. Um, the first time I was in intentional community, it was on a, a, a on a campus that was very similar to like a a small college campus where groups of missionaries lived together and we'd had training programs and, and so forth. And I also lived in a, a intentional community that was like in more, more of a rural setting with, with cabins and a, and a common um, dining room and kitchen where we shared meals together. Um, I've shared life with, you know, a couple of the single people living in a, in a home with, with a family and, um, and our, our current one is uh, the house we live in now. It's a duplex. My wife and I and our, my son live on, on one side. And on the other side, we have anywhere between four and ten people living at a given time. Um, and there's, there's a semi-permeable barrier between us in the sense that we do have our own space. Um, but uh, we, we share a house together and we do meals together on, on a semi-regular basis. So there's all levels of, of, of complexity and, and, and appearance to co-housing. Um, the one thing I will say, though, is that co-housing is, is much more than – when we're talking about co-housing in, in intentional community, it's more than just having roommates because um, that can be good, too, because a lot of people go, yeah, well, you know, I had a roommate in college. And you certainly can learn a lot from having a roommate in college or university. But the, the key word in intentional community is intentional. Uh, and, and, and the intention is to, to be community, to, to form um, – relationships, distinct relationships with people based upon uh, sharing, sharing housing together. Um, and, and well, I would say that community doesn't have the same requirement on time frame. True community can happen in three days. You're, you're together with people for three days only. You can encounter true community. But um, I, I always say that um, when it comes to the relationship, true community requires at least as much commitment as a family mm. in the sense of you place priority, you make time, you share what you have. Um, 
and 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 there is that sense of of proximity to one another mm-hmm. um and yeah so it, it's kind of hard to describe because it, there is a, a a really wide variety of the way it, it could look but the co-housing part it's not for everyone you know yeah, i am sure. i'm i'm an introvert and i i can find it really difficult and so at this stage in my life you know being married and having a new son um we need that space to to have our family time um but we're always on the on the the edge of of challenging our comfort zone so it's yeah. like if we have a boundary it's important to have boundaries but we always say if we're not uncomfortable with the boundary, we've probably gone too far in the other direction, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> always saying, okay, you know, and so discernment is always a process uh, with, with that. That's one thing that Richard Beck talks about a lot. You mentioned Richard Beck earlier was, was boundaries and how we've used boundaries to isolate ourselves from community and as an excuse to, um, to really, keep in our comfort zone and maintain our own stuff and mm-hmm. keep from having to, you know, the root word of community is communion to keep from having the sharing with people mm-hmm. in, in light of talking about that sharing, because, you know, especially I, I, I'm, I'm not that familiar with Canadian culture, but I would imagine that it's much like the United States in in the nuclear family and, you know, kind of our, our basic assumptions surrounding that. Um, <laughs> I would be it, lynched. I'd be lynched by my Canadian friends if I didn't say, well, there's also differences, but you're right. <laughs> Got to differentiate, differentiate yourself from those people, those crazy Americans down there. <laughs> I understand. Well, um, I, just so you know, I'm, I'm Minnesota born myself. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Are you a Vikings fan? That's the question. I'm not a sports fan, which is okay. the only well, part okay. of the podcast that I never get. <laughs> <laughs> that's all good. I used to be a big, big Minnesota Vikings fan, so I won't go there. But anyway, <laughs> it, it, one of the things that's interested me is um, uh, I hear a lot of people that do co-housing that talk about sharing resources. And um, I know, you know, we read the book of Acts and we read about the early church and how they pulled their resources, those that had lands took and sold them. And they basically had a collection, the ones who were poor, they gave the money to so that it was really, you know, in in a a form of socialism where there was really not, uh, there wasn't a pyramid of rich people at the top, poor people at the bottom, but everyone was basically on the same socioeconomic level. In saying that, and I, and I hope I'm not prodding and getting too personal here, and if I am, tell me to quit, because <laughs> I'm not letting you look at my bank account. So, but um, have you? Is that something that you've experimented with, shared resources, and if so, on what level? Yeah, again, the the sharing of resources is just as diverse as um, the expressions of intentional community, and. Um, uh, I've never like you, you hear about communities like the simple way um, or I don't know if you're familiar with the Mennonite worker out of Minneapolis. Um, Mark yeah. um, those guys do it in ways that I, I honestly deeply respect. Um, uh, I, and, and, you know, but not myself and, and not everyone in our community. Maybe, maybe we're not brave enough. I don't know what, the, what the case may be, but we've, we've never gone uh, to that uh, extent of, of, uh, the common purse or, or sharing resources. Um, but it's also a journey. If, if you looked at our community, when it, our current community, when it formed into where it is today, there's, there's far more sharing. Um, there is a sense, there is a sense that uh, in our community that we, um, 
again, that kind of family covenant where we recognize that if, if there's someone in our community who has need and we have means, we do what we can to, to help them. And, and we've experimented with things. We did a microloan program in our community um, and, uh, and helped uh, a couple of people get out of debt. We, we had a, a, we do a, a whole lot of, like my wife and I laugh because, it, you know, you, you get trained to be in, in missions and, you know, you study all the theology and stuff. And we spend half our time doing financial counseling, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and helping people. Like we had one uh, leader in our, our church community who, when she came to us, she was tens of thousands of dollars in, in debt because of a retail addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and now is is not only a homeowner, but She's formed a community in her current home, got married and needs some time apart with her, her spouse. And so is buying a second home. I mean, you don't, I mean, and this is a matter of three or four years. And so it's really exciting because we basically say if, if a person individually has to cope with all this, they don't have the means, but if we can all share our means together, um, we can make it happen. Uh, and it's happening in other creative ways. Like we have a project called Chiara House. Um, and, and the way Chiara House started was, Someone asked us, uh, little flowers that is, uh, when we were going to get a real church building. We meet, we meet in our home in the community house here. And, <laughs> and I have nothing against the quote-unquote real church building, but I, I kind of went on a rant on my blog in response to that question. And I basically said, you know, if, I had the, if we had the means to, to have a real church, quote-unquote, I'd rather us buy an apartment building and, and create community and affordable housing and, and – uh, you know, and that was an easy dream for me to put out there because our, we didn't even have a bank account for the first four years of being a church. We didn't need one. And, and um, well, after that, a couple of people, a, a person in the denomination we partnered with and some Christian business people approached us and they said, we'd like to make this a reality. And so now they've, they've purchased uh, a, an apartment building and they're renovating it for us. They're going to own it, manage it on our behalf, and yet we're going to be the pastoral wow. presence there. And we're going to be able to extend – uh, 10, 10 suites of affordable housing and intentional community of, a, of various levels to people in our neighborhood. Um, and, and again, wow. that's, that's when people recognize that their resources are not just their own. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. That's really awesome. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I know that a lot of people that do co-housing and talk about intentional community talk about a lot is the idea of radical hospitality. Mm. And of course, you know, in, in the um, American South, the idea of hospitality is a covered dish supper at someone's house. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as far as it goes. And uh, just to give you an idea, uh, I'm going totally on a rabbit trail here, but what's new? Um, I, I have this funny story in, in talking about Southernisms. In, in the South, we have this thing where we'll always say, you know, when, when someone's getting ready to leave, like maybe maybe you were at church together growing up and someone was getting ready to leave. You'd say, well, just come on and come on home with us or come on and eat with us. Mm. And, you know, people always knew that what that really meant was it's time for me to get in my car and go home. So I'll see you later. And uh, <laughs> my wife, my wife's dad, um, <laughs> he was at church one day at, at his little country church, which is about a mile from his house. And he had he had driven home from church and he was getting ready to go inside his house. And some people were walking down the road uh, on their way back to their house and they passed by his house. And so he stopped and talked to him for a moment and he said, well, come on in and eat with us. And what he was really saying was, I'm done talking. I want to go eat my lunch now. 
And those people weren't from the South. And they said, well, that would be a great idea. And so he had about four house guests that night, uh, that that day for lunch um, (laughs) with a preparation for two people. So that's the kind of hospitality that we do in the South. It's called, we don't really want you here, but we'll (laughs) act like we do. So (laughs) in, in saying that with radical hospitality, what do you think radical hospitality is and why do you think it's a Christian practice? Wow. Big question. Got a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this um, is beyond the box, right? Yeah, right. Well, we, we, uh, we, it's funny you should ask that because we've just spent the last six weeks in our community um, discussing hospitality. Um, uh, we were resourcing uh, from the book Making Room by Christine Paul. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. but I'm not. It is honestly, it is probably the most essential book on hospitality you'll ever read. Um, uh, Dr. Paul, what she does is she goes through uh, Old Testament, the New Testament concepts of hospitality, and looks at the, the what happened through Christian history with hospitality, and 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 makes a pretty clear argument that fundamental to both Jewish and Christian faith was hospitality, and that at the heart of even the Eucharist. In the, in, the, in the church was hospitality. Um, and when that started getting lost, it was one of the more devastating um, uh, things to ever happen to the church. And I mean, it's interesting because um, I'm, I'm, I'm not one to quote John Calvin much. Uh, but nor am I, <laughs> but, but here's one you'll probably like. It's not a direct quote, but he, a broken clock is still right twice a day, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, he, when he was commenting, there were the, the emergence of hotels and inns in Europe around his time was was seen by him as a, as as a loss, a result of the loss of hospitality in the church. And he saw hotels and inns; he called them a depravity. Wow! You know, and and you kind of got to go. We, we, well, we know what Kelvin, Kelvin when he talked about depravity, we know what he talked about. <laughs> so you can see that even then, in in, in just those centuries past how big a loss hospitality was. Um, mm. And so for us, when we, when we think about hospitality in, in our community, it, it's essentially this, um, this recognition uh, that every person is created in, in the image of God. Mm. Uh, and more specifically that Jesus said that when you encounter the least of these, you encounter me. And so um, <clears throat> it, that that way of thinking changes our posture as Christians. I was raised in a good evangelical church and home, but our primarily our primary way of being discipled was that you needed to be like Jesus to people. You need to act like Jesus to people, and that's really good. I mean, if that's all you do, great. I mean, that'll help you a lot. But what this kind of thinking does when you when you say that the divine is encountered in the other, you switch from being Jesus in to others to seeing Jesus in others. And and when mm. I if, if you're the other and I come to you as Jesus, I'm going to come. I am Jesus to you. And there's a <laughs> there's a positional mentality that even though Jesus wouldn't do that, there's a condescension. Yeah, absolutely. But if I come to you and, and you're Jesus, all of a sudden I come on my knees. I come serving. I come humbled. I come you know expectant. Um, and and there's more of a mutuality that that goes on there. And so that is the kind of the fundamental uh, way we approach hospitality. Um, because it, it, it requires us to recognize the mutuality in all humanity. Now, I want to throw in really quickly here that that concept of Jesus in the least of these is a really romantic notion. <laughs> mm. 
And it's like, if I don't, I, no one would ever say this, I don't think, but I think there's some people who think that, you know, I'm going to care for the homeless person. And it's almost as though they're going to suddenly cast off their regs and it's, hi, I am Christ. I'm going to honor you for your hospitality. Aww. Exactly. And, you know, the, the, the homeless man with the heart of gold. And, and honestly, I know a, a lot of uh, uh, homeless people who do have hearts of gold. Um, but at the same time, we have extended hospitality to people who have been ungrateful, who have stolen from us, who have uh, taken advantage of us. And, and that isn't a case of, well, we'll learn for next time. No, that was – it's in those moments, those hard moments that we've encountered Christ because we're given the opportunity to treat them as Christ with grace and forgiveness and love. And, um, uh, and that's what's so critical. Jean Vanier, who, who is an incredible man and writer, in his book Community and Growth – at one point he says um, something of the nature is, you know, we don't find ourselves uh, in our strengths, um, but, but we find ourselves in, in, in our brokenness and, and our inadequacies. And, and it, is, it is there that community is formed, and it's, it's really true. And that's why hospitality to people who are considered the least of these is so important. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus subverts that whole condescending thing by saying, yes, they're the least of these, but he says – I am the least of these. So you don't treat them with condescension. You treat them with honor. Um, but again, that romantic notion needs to be dismantled before we do that. I, I, I'm sure someone on the podcast has said this before, but uh, uh, Benedictine uh, monks often had the same sense of hospitality that when a stranger came, it was Jesus. And, you know, and it, but every once in a while, someone would open the door. They would see the stranger and they'd say, oh, Christ, it's you. You know? <laughs> And, and, and they got it, you know, they understood that, yes, it may be Jesus, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And again, that's one of the costs of community. Well, uh, I just have to throw in this little uh, parenthetical statement. James Cross, that, um, that reference to John Vanier was for you. <laughs> he, he's actually, he was saying he wanted us to talk about John Vanier. So that was for him. That was Jean, for James Cross. John Vanier's book, Community and Growth, I picked up. I was I was in this some church doing a potluck or something. I don't even it wasn't even my church, and they had a bookshelf, and I saw this book there, and I pulled it off the shelf and read a few pages. And it honestly, you ask people who know me, what am I passionate about? Community, and I credit that book for being the turning point. Wow, wow, awesome! You know, you said something there, Jamie, in um, talking about um, kind of the condescension that that we come to. So many times, and I, and I think maybe it's a necessary thing that we start there. You know, it's like it's like you talk about in the book that so many times we're so concerned to do things out of a pure motive that we do nothing at all, <laughs> and how important it is that we actually, you know, even if we have an impure motive, that that's okay because God's going to purify that in the process, but he can't begin to purify something if there's nothing there to purify. Mm. So. In saying that, you have a quote um, from Lilla Watson, which I just thought was fantastic, mm. um, in talking about how sometimes we can come off as condescending to homeless people or, for instance, white, uh, you know, white Americans in the South can feel like we want to bridge the racial divide. And so sometimes we can feel like I'm going to be the great this great person who befriends a person of color and builds this bridge to them as if we're the white savior coming to elevate them to our level. And that little Watson, you quote her in the book is saying, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, 
then let us work together. I just thought, whoa, that is so powerful. Because Mm. like you say, so many times we, especially as believers in Jesus, we come from such a place of privilege. Mm. We go on a mission trip that's maybe a week or two weeks long to somewhere Mm. in the third world, to Haiti or to Nigeria or somewhere in Africa. And we feel like we're going in there to make a difference, you know, to to bring Jesus to these people as if Jesus wasn't already there amongst them. And I just thought, wow, it's such a powerful, a powerful statement. Why do you believe that the liberation of the rich or the middle class, let's say, especially, especially in the first world in Canada, in the United States, why is the liberation of the rich or middle class tied specifically to the poor? Well, I don't think we can look at poverty and affluence as two different issues they they um they're they're one in the same uh core issue and and um uh, and i and i don't mean that in 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 the sense of you know it's just it's all about a a fair redistribution of wealth though that would go a long way to help um but rather it's it's the sense of um uh the 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 dynamics that so often perpetuate poverty especially extreme poverty um can you can see clear correlations with uh, the countries that experience the most affluence, that their affluence is often built on the backs of, wow. of those who suffer, suffer the, the most poverty. And, and, and it, it is something of an oversimplification, but I think it actually works when, you know, I, I talk to, to certain friends and they ask why we don't shop at certain um, uh, stores that, that shall remain unnamed Walmart. <laughs> uh, and 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 they say well you know like there we can save so much money shopping there that we would so we can we can we can spend that much more money giving to the poor and i said okay i said let me ask you if you stole all the goods from a store you would save even more money mm-hmm. would not be a good strategy like, oh no 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 i could never steal well, that's not right i i can pay less but i can't steal like but what if the only reason you can pay less is because somewhere along the line, yeah. someone's being stolen from? Wow. And if you can know that that's true, how is that any different? Mm-hmm. But in our individualistic culture, as long as there's one step removed, we feel like we're no longer culpable. Now, mm-hmm. it's, it's very difficult and probably near impossible to completely disconnect from that exploitive economic system living in the West. But we certainly can do a heck of a lot better. Um, and people say, well, you know, like I, I can't afford – to not shop at places like Walmart. And I say, well, you know, for a lot of my, you know, middle-class friends, I think, well, you could, if you live more simply, you, you, you can't afford it at your current standard of living, but have you asked yourself whether your current standard of living is, is right. But then I have people who I know who are genuinely poor and they can only afford to shop at Walmart. And I will not fault a single mom who's trying to feed her kids from shopping at Walmart. What I will do is I'll fault the church for not providing an alternative for her. Wow. Wow. So good. This is to me, Jamie, and this is not, I want to make sure that people don't hear this in a condemning way, but I think this is kind of for me where the rubber is hitting the road. Uh, For myself, the last several years, I've grown more and more uncomfortable with only discussing theology and especially what I would call ethereal theology. I mean, I think, Mm. I think atonement is important. I think hell's important. (laughs) I think all of these things that we've talked about, the Bible's important but for me, more and more, the, the, these are the kind of issues where the rubber hits the road because we can all have our opinions about hell. We can all have a, our opinions about atonement. But if at the end of the day, those don't affect how we love our neighbor mm. as ourselves, 
then, you know, are, are they worth the time that it takes to discuss them? Are those books worth the paper that they're printed on if they don't lead us to love our neighbor as ourselves? Um, I, if I could just throw in here too, sure, I, sure. I, I, in the same way, I get really passionate when I talk about these economic issues and I, I really don't want anyone to feel condemned. Um, I don't, you know, in the, in the words of the great Dr. Phil, I don't want anyone to substitute their judgment for mine, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not my place, but I, what, what's important to recognize that for those of us in our community who, who've chosen to make those, those economic um, decisions it's not really – it actually didn't start primarily as an ideological conviction that we're, we're, we're doing as activists. It was actually a response to relationships. It was a response to um, both in North America and, and uh, I've traveled you know, 10 or 11 nations around the world and, and seen the, firsthand the impact of our economic system. And it became relational. It became like it's, I'm not doing this because I have an ideology, though it's, there's certainly ideological reasons not to do it. I'm doing it because I have seen firsthand and met and befriended the people who are bearing the burden of this. And 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 we talked about you know the whole conversation on the Facebook group about a list of do's or or shoulds. Yeah, shoulds, yeah. And 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 what as I was thinking about that this week, I realized that there 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 needs to be shoulds, but not in the sense of a should like a a, a, a magistrate coming in and saying this is how you should behave, but right. rather something that comes from my heart where I should honor my wife. Oh. I, I, oh. I don't, I don't stay faithful to my wife because it's a rule. <laughs> right. Right. I stay faithful to my wife because the thought of what it would do to her to not devastates me. And so it's motivated by love. And so I should be faithful. But again, you can see the clear distinction between the motivation. And sometimes we need rules in place to help us learn that. But the moment we allow those things to become ideological, um, we have problems. I, I think. I think in many ways, Trip York kind of addressed that on your podcast uh, with him when he talked about ethics and and how wow. Christian ethics is problematic because it becomes that. But well, the, and and to me, this is you know, I think this is why maybe maybe I've become more passionate about it, and maybe people like you, maybe this is one of the reasons that you're more passionate about it. But maybe it's for me because I've grown up in a conservative evangelicalism that focused on morality in the sense of um, the words that you said, the music you listened to, mm. the clothes you wore, all of the external type things, mm. but didn't really get at the heart of issues of justice and issues mm. of fairness and isu issues of equality mm. that, you know, the, that we never looked at um, things like, you know, segregation in the sixties mm. as a Christian issue. It mm. was a social issue that Christians were, you know, we preach a spiritual gospel, not a social gospel. <laughs> and so many times we've, we've just made them into this false dichotomy where you mm. either have the spiritual gospel or you have the social gospel, but God knows you can't have both. <laughs> and, uh, you know, more and more, I think maybe that's why, maybe that's why I find myself beating some of these drums a lot more recently is because I'm realizing that if, if this quote by Lilla Watson is true, that my liberation is tied up mm. with quote unquote, those people, mm -hmm. you know, where yeah. it's not where, where these people are my brothers, they're my sisters. And, you know, getting back to what you were talking about earlier with the nuclear family, I think that when we talk about intentional community, and this really gets to the heart of what Steve and I have talked about a lot when it comes to enemy love, 
to turning the other cheek mm-hmm. is that we have so elevated the nuclear family to a place where we can't see the we we can no longer see our relation to people outside of our nuclear family mm-hmm. so that we make these hypothetical situations where we talk about someone breaking in and hurting our wife hurting our kids and we talk about wouldn't you kill that person and it's an automatic for people yes i would kill that person without even thinking oh wait a minute they're my brother too mm-hmm. or wait a minute that person if i'm if i'm called to love them as i love myself mm-hmm then I'm not to see a distinction and that mm-hmm. it's not a matter of, like you said, ideological positioning or becoming an, you know, uh, turning it into an ideology, but it's about love. It's mm-hmm. about recognizing that they're part of the human family, that their father is God, my father is God, and therefore I'm their brother or sister. Yeah. And, and that will be, and scripture tells us that will be seen as weakness to the world. Exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. and it's even seen as evil. You know, yeah. I think so many times, yeah. you know, they, they, um, in the early church, they accused the early church of incest because they called each other brother and sister <laughs> and they lived together and they shared things. And, yeah. you know, so it was like, wow, this is just really messed up to the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and the, and the sense that, that it's, it's not ideological, but relational again, it, 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 it's, it is offensive to the world and there's a degree to which trying to rationally convince the world that it isn't, or even other Christians that it isn't. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to convince them, but it, I think we're, according to the logic of way we experience the world, it doesn't make sense. You know, it is a path to, to, to the cross, you know? Um, And so again, that brings us back to the question of the dichotomy between preaching and living. And it's like, Hmm. if you want to convince people that that way of life is right, then, then embody it. Um, You know, it, it's interesting that a lot of the same people who would be like, I would kill someone would also then say, you know, do you respect Martin Luther King Jr.? Yes. Do you respect Gandhi? Yes. You know, and and it's like, well, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr., people love to quote him today about, you know, segregation and, and bringing things together. But, you know, no one really talks much about the fact that he was against the Vietnam War, which was hugely right. unpopular to a lot of people on both sides of of, of political lines. And, and yet and for a him, lot of people believe that's why he was assassinated more yeah. so than the, than, you know, ra- issues of race. Yeah. And I, I, it wouldn't surprise me. It's, it's, you know, it's, and so we, 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 we're not going to probably convince people primarily through, um, you know, convincing them rationally because, you know, uh, as Donald Crable says, you know, God's kingdom is the upside down kingdom. And, mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so when we, when we use the kingdom logic, it's completely illogical to the world, but ultimately it's not because God's kingdom is upside down, but that our world is upside down. Mm. And, and when we flip it over to God's kingdom and that's the way it should be. And, and the only way that is going to get a credible witness is for people to, to live it. Um, and the, 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 the funny thing about that though, is again, that also challenges our metrics of success because yeah. It, it might prove itself to be successful by us becoming martyrs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it reminds me of what you said earlier, Jamie, when we were talking about Francis. And it seems like in so many ways, the way that we've minimized Francis's voice is by dubbing him St. Francis. Mm. Because the moment we've done that, we've put him on a level that is unattainable by us and mm. therefore not something we can follow. And you talk about in the book, how we've really done the same thing with Jesus, how not, you know, and, and this is not, not to say that we don't worship Jesus, but 
to we we've gotten to the point where we worship Jesus to the exclusion of following him mm. or as a substitute for following him and mm. in doing that by putting him on this pedestal he becomes not a model to emulate but uh you know this something that's other than us mm. that we can never attain to and therefore if we put him on this pedestal we don't have to actually listen to what he says yeah, absolutely. And 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 that's and that reality is what really drew me to Anabaptism. It's what, you know, led me to become Mennonite. Um uh, you know, uh because there was there's a, there is at least historically um a strong sense within Anabaptism that Jesus is not only the the savior who we who we adore, but he is the Lord who we obey. And and um, you know, <laughs> I mean, my book is 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 goes verse by verse through the entire Sermon on the Mount, and I I was raised with some people in my life telling me that the Sermon on the Mount was never meant to be obeyed. That it was the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was to demonstrate how impossible it is. And then I go, but yet you just preach from the Golden Rule, and you just use the <laughs> Lord's Prayer, and then you, we sing about the wise and foolish builder. It's like you can't have it both ways. But when you read the when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it seems pretty clear to me that Jesus was saying. You know, the wise person is not the person who believed what he said. The wise person is the person who heard what he said and did it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, it, it starts in the heart, but it bears fruit in our lives. There's no dichotomy between the heart and our hands. Um, we have a we have a thing in our community called the three H's, and it's head, heart, and hands. And mm-hmm. and whenever we come across an idea or or a conviction or an opportunity, we 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 kind of informally run it through that grid head like what's our understanding what does scripture say about it what what does our reason say about it? like we don't abandon reason as christians our heart what you know wh- where's the relational uh, impulse here there's some things that may not make sense logically but in, in the light of relationship we would most certainly do and then finally hands you know how do we then embody this how do we bring this into the incarnation because we genuinely believe that the church is god's is jesus physical presence um in the world and that again the fact that i we believe that uh, the church is God's physical presence in the world is the body of Christ in the world that all the more reason that we need to emulate him because it's his body. It should be doing what he's up to. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like you were talking about earlier with <clears throat> MLK, you know, how just one generation later we find ourselves quoting him and he, you know, it, it, those quotes really are mainstream. You find them on people's Facebook posts all the time. You know, you, you, you find them in popular books and it reminds me so much of you remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he said, you build the tombs of the prophets and you know, you, you do these elaborate memorials for the prophets, but it was your fathers who killed the prophets Mm. that so many times we have to go back and remember, you know, we've got to be careful because the, the very way to ignore someone is to honor them. (laughs) (laughs) It's the, the, the quickest way to ignoring Jesus is to worshiping him. And I think it's such a, it's such a dangerous thing, such a yeah. dangerous thing. And, and that's, and that's actually, I, I, I'm sure most of you, the listeners will be familiar with Dorothy Day, the co-founder of the yeah. Catholic worker, but you know, she, there's another famous quote by her is, you know, she goes, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily, Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and that's really critical. But at the same time, if anyone who's, who's read Dorothy Day's life, she loved the saints and mm-hmm. she, she spent time with the saints because she understood the tension there that on one side, you don't want to emulate the saints to the point where you, you put them above yourself and, and, and therefore don't have any, any reason 
reason or motivation to emulate them, but neither do you want to ignore the fact that they stand out for a reason. And yeah. that reason is their faithfulness to do what they heard Jesus saying. And so you've, you've got to live in that tension. Um, and, and I think we see that tension in, in scripture as well. Um, and I think that's kind of the history of, of, of humanity struggling between these kind of extremes. Going, going to some of those Facebook conversations we've been having lately, and there's been all sorts of really good conversations going on on the Beyond the Box page. Um, we were talking on Facebook, uh, and this, this is one of the first times that this came out that I thought this was an interesting and, and uh, well-placed pushback by you. We were talking on Facebook about being content in the love of God and not feeling like we had to hunger more or thirst more because so many of us that have grown up in the charismatic movement or have cut our teeth in the charismatic movement – you know, we've sang all of those songs like more love, more power, you know, rain down Holy Spirit, all of these things about needing more from God. And so many of us have come to a place where we're going, you know, enough already. I'm complete in him. I'm, God's not holding out on me. You know, he, he's filled me with his presence. I can rest in that love. And so, so many of us are pushing back against something that we've come out of and saw as an abuse mm. within the charismatic world. And and so someone had posted, I think Steve had actually posted, um, had shared a post from someone else on the Facebook page that was basically making the sentiment. And in in that context, you kind of pushed back against that slightly and said, you know, we've got to we've got to find a way to be content in God's love, but also to find a way not to really be complacent mm. in sharing that love with others. Mm. And I, I really I thought that was a really good um I think some people were probably taken aback by that because they're going, I'm just not there right now. And I think there's a lot of people in our community that yeah. are going, I'm not there right now. I'm, I'm having to, we have so many people in our community that have been burnt on religion. They've been burnt on shoulds like, like Judy talked about on Facebook. They've been burnt on rules. Mm -hmm. They've worked their finger to the bone, quote unquote, for Jesus. And they're just tired of feeling like they never measure up, mm -hmm. like they always have to do more. And then someone like Jamie Arpenrisi comes in the conversation and just has to shake it up. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right. I think there's this, I think there's this pendulum and we tend to either swing it one way or another. Mm. And I'm finding more and more because I was, I, for years, I mean, I've been out of, I stepped down from being a pastor. I guess it's been, um, it's almost eight years ago, seven and a half years ago or so. Mm. And during that time, I've went through a lot of deprogramming, deprocessing, deconstructing, and just spending time going, I don't want to feel like I have to earn anything. I don't mm -hmm. want to feel like I have to work it. I don't want to feel like I've got to keep God happy. Mm -hmm. And now I've moved beyond that place of going, okay, I'm over it now. God loves me no matter what. God loves me unconditionally. This has nothing to do with the love of God. I've got that settled. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about trying to keep him off my back. So now I've got to get out of a place of just being concerned with my own contentment and my own satisfaction in God and get to a place where I can do works of mercy. I can do works of justice, but without the motivation of trying mm -hmm. to earn God's love mm -hmm. or trying to keep God happy. Can you talk some about how we take those two, what seemingly are polar opposites and how we marry them together and how we walk somewhere in the middle of the road. 
Big question. I, I could I could make millions on a book if I had the perfect answer to that question. <laughs> Here is how you perfectly marry the, these two things together that Christians have not been able to do for 2,000 years. <laughs> I have my opinions, but it's a journey I'm learning from too. But um, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier uh, with the being Jesus and seeing Jesus tension. Because um, uh, I, I believe that only when we see Jesus and others and treat them accordingly that we actually, the result is we are being Jesus to them. But um, one of the things that, it, go, it goes back to the sense of seeing the divine image in the other, seeing Christ in the other, and the sense that, um, I, I and I'm sure some of you, yourself and others were raised this way, but the motivation for evangelism, that scary word evangelism, was you want to save people so that they don't spend an eternity in hell. Well, that that will motivate people. And I, and I know many people who have come to a meaningful faith through that kind of evangelism. But I also realize that a faith born out of fear produces fruit accordingly to its nature. Um, but something that occurred to me as I was, I was, I was studying, um, uh, well, that Lilla Watson quote, I was studying indigenous, Lilla Watson is an Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal woman from Australia, but I was studying uh, global indigenous concepts of justice. And, um, I began to, to to realize that when we can shift that perspective and seeing the mutuality of, of our need, I, I look at the other rather than as, as as the object of 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 my project for conversion. I see in them the divine image and and and, and say to myself, there is something in them distinct about God that apart from them I will never truly understand. And I pursue them because I want to know God more, and I want to know God that as he's distinctly reflected in that individual or in that group. And that's not just to say God reflected once they become a Christian. No, right where they are at that moment, whether they're, you know, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, gay, straight, it doesn't matter where they are. They reflect something distinct about the image of God. And, and so I'm motivated not out of a sense of guilt or earning God's love, but rather I am pursuing a knowledge and, and relationship with God more. I, I get to know you and in getting to know you, I know God more. You know, we, again, I, I love the podcast, Michael Harden talking about the interdividual, that sense of yeah. we, we become more of who we are when we become more of who we are, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and so part of, part of the, the answer to your question, this isn't the whole answer, but part of the answer is changing the motivation that it's not, a, again, it's not a should because, Otherwise, you'll be guilty of something, but rather should because you you can't help yourself but to want to pursue that. Yeah, you know, you yeah. want to you want to know the other so that you can encounter Christ in them. Mm, mm. That's so good, so good. Um, and 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 moving forward with with that, because if we get to that place, I think that's and and this is where I'm at now. I'm in a place of kind of moving beyond feeling okay about my relationship with God to a place of going, okay, what has got, what work has God got for me in the world? And more and more these issues of justice are coming up for me. And, and this is just for me personally, you know, I, I make the disclaimer, Steve and I make the disclaimer have done this for years that we're just two guys thinking out loud. So people tune into this podcast 
uh, and they, they hear my conversation with you. It's just that it's my conversation with you. I do not represent the community. Mm-hmm. And so in saying this, I don't think everybody's where I'm at on this and that's absolutely fine. But, but, um, in my conversation with you, I'm finding myself going more and more in this direction, regardless of where anybody else is going. And so something that I've been thinking about is there seems to be kind of a, um, there's all of these multifaceted ways that we deal with issues of justice in the mm. body of Christ. And um, I know in more of the Anabaptist stream, um, there there's almost a, I guess there's almost a view of, of the kingdom of God as being something that we, we kind of withdraw into a separate society. So that for instance, intentional community, we get together and people that co-house, we, we house together, we share our resources, we do all this as a demonstration of the kingdom of God in the midst of empire mm-hmm. so that we can demonstrate to the empire what it looks like to be the kingdom of God. But we stay removed from the empire's politics. We stay removed from the empire's issues and we, we live out the alternative. Mm-hmm. We don't call the empire to the alternative, but we live out the alternative in front of them. So that mm-hmm. seems to be one model of how Christians do justice. Mm-hmm. Then I look at something like the Catholic worker and the Catholic worker does some of that as well, but they are also very much into um, a lot of the protesting issues of injustice. Mm-hmm. They'll, they demonstrate an alternative in their lifestyle, but they also, so I guess what I'm trying to say, they'll, they live an alternative, but they call out prophetically mm-hmm. as we were talking earlier, they call out what's wrong in society. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm finding myself more and more over the last few years um, influenced a lot by people like Jim and Shelley Douglas, mm. by the Plowshares movement, by mm-hmm. John Deere. A mm. lot of these people that are protesting nuclear weapons that are going to prison for sometimes years um, because they've crossed onto a military base and took a ha- took a hammer to, you know, uh, a tank or something like that. Mm-hmm. So in saying that, where where are you at? in these issues of justice. Do you think that it's a combination of living the alternative and in protesting the empire, or do you think that it's simply living the alternative in the midst of empire? I, I think it has to be both. Um, uh, a couple, a couple of things come to mind. One of the, one of the things that comes to mind uh, is, is um, Gandhi and his, 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 the famous salt March, you know, when he marched yeah, across yeah. to the sea to make salt and, you know, Crowds joined him, and it was this huge. I mean, it turned a, a literal empire, self-identified empire, on its on its ear by by doing that. And and people look at that kind of protest, and they go, "Protest works," and they 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 try to do protest. And I've heard a lot of disillusioned young people today who say, "You know, we went to a protest, and nothing ever changes." And, yeah. and and I think there are some changing dynamics in the world we live in. But here's something that people often miss: is that for Gandhi's protest to be effective, for it to actually cause the change, it had to come out of a community, a wider community that that was living this alternative together for almost a decade before this this happened, and and you know it's kind of um, it's kind of like an egg. It's like you know you're waiting for this egg to hatch and it's just sitting there. It's just this egg, and all of a sudden, boom, there's a chick. But we all know that what we don't see going on the inside is this process of gestation and formation. And, 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 and that's why I think it has to be both. I think if people who jump to protest too quickly, um, it's very gratifying. It's very, you know, 
cathartic. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah if it, cathartic's a good word. Yeah, but if it doesn't come out of that that rootedness and being inner transformation, again, we're talking about the heart produces fruit, then it can often just be that. It can just be a a, a burning bright but shortly kind of, kind of event. Um, but at the same time, there is the risk, and, and the Mennonite tradition, I think, has, has had this problem uh, historically, is that if you don't engage the world, you can easily become isolationist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, um, the practice of hospitality um, in, in, in kind of Anabaptist history, it was very present, but it took on the name mutual aid. Uh, and mainly, I believe, and mutual aid is a beautiful thing, but I believe it, was, it, it took on that language because it was almost exclusively directed inward. Uh, and they were in survival mode. They were being killed by Catholics and Protestants alike. So, and a, and a good example of that, Jamie, just the, for our listeners, is you know I think of I think of the United, in the United States we have the Amish, right? And this is not calling them out in any way. I'm just saying that's an example of of, of someone that would come to our mind that we say they're isolationists. They yeah. they live in community, an intentional community, but they do it apart from the world. Yeah, and and and. I, I have a great deal of respect for, for many Amish communities. There's not yeah. a monolithic Amish yeah, you know, yeah. identity. But there, I, I actually have no problem on some levels you know, calling out the Amish because the, their isolationism has produced within some of their communities some devastating uh, injustice. You know, like yeah. hearing stories about, about, uh, about splits in entire communities because – the men, some men said you should only wear one suspender because that's all it takes to hold up your pants and everything else is vanity. I mean, when you're splitting over whether to wear one or two suspenders, you've you got right. a problem. But right. at the same time, you know, they have held on to something that people on the other extreme have lost and that sense of radical alternative living. So I, I think, I think that, that is, I, I definitely would, would say that it has to be a both and kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a tough thing, um, especially especially when you know, for someone like me, you know, we we and I, you saw a Facebook post that I did earlier today, and uh, you know, uh, grew up in the country, grew up in the rural South, and so you know, your neighbors were two miles down the road, mm-hmm. and so you know, you'd go to somewhere like Washington D.C. and see a bunch of people protesting nuclear weapons, and just mm-hmm. assume that these people are. They're, they're probably mentally unstable. Mm-hmm. They're obviously homeless, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and, and then it's like more and more, I'm, I'm, as I said in that post, more and more, I'm thinking these might be the only sane people <laughs> yeah. in the United States right now in a nation that has enough nuclear weapons to blow up about 30 earths. Yeah. Um, these might be the only sane people walking the, the planet right now. Yeah. Um, and talking about money, because, you know, so much of what we're talking about when we talk about communion, we talk about sharing and, you know, we've talked about whether, whether that's a common purse or whether it's not. Um, you had an interesting quote by Stanley Hauerwas in the book that, that I'd like to share with our listeners it says to be rich and a disciple of Jesus is to have a problem that capitalism is an economic system justified by the production of wealth is therefore not necessarily good news for the Christian. <laughs> Now, so many of us um, have grown up with, uh, and you know, Steve and I have deconstructed this for a number of years, this idea of American Christian or mm-hmm. this idea of Canadian Christian and how intrinsically uh, we've looked at those as being tied together. Um, 
what what do I, I guess in my in my question would be there's so many of us that are privileged you know i'm i'm a white middle class male i'm about as privileged as you can get in the united states right so for those of us who are privileged um you talk about in the book that that jesus's kingdom is for the down, downwardly mobile mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of steps do you do you think are practical steps and of course this is going to differ for everyone and we're not asking for shoulds here. We're not asking for lists of do's and don'ts, but what are some practical steps that privileged people such as myself can take to intentionally engage with those less fortunate without the conde- the condescension that so many times comes with that? Mm. Well, this is something I'm still learning myself, but because, um, you know, I, I share that same white male middle-class privilege, um, I think one of the things for me uh, that that has been really important is to, and, and and I don't mean just intellectually understand this, but genuinely embrace this and let it the implications of this shape my life, is the recognition that my position of privilege is built uh, out of oppression a lot of times, and um, even if I'm not personally responsible for that oppression in, in many cases, I'm still benefiting from it. Um, but in in saying that, um, recognizing that, um, how do I put this? That the the as 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 someone who is part of I, I know this language sounds so condemning, but as part of the oppressor or privileged oppressor group, that I cannot be the solution to their injustice mm. because mm. that that becomes. A, a, another form of oppression you know it's like i may be the source of the injustice but I, I i can participate in it i have to participate in it but i can't dictate the terms of of your of your salvation uh i need to come alongside you and and, and allow you as the other as the oppressed to to tell me um uh how this it needs to go. And I'm not saying we just have to blindly agree, but we have to put ourselves in the position of, of, of the inferior uh, in, in that respect. And I think that again, being careful not to romanticize, but groups of people, uh, and, and I speak specifically right now of Christians who have been within oppressed groups, whether it's racially or, or otherwise tend in my, in my mind to, to hold the, the, the torch for, for faithful witness of Christianity and history. You know, when, when you look at American history and go, what is, what is the most faithful witness of, of Christianity in American history? In many ways, I look often to the African-American church, even as far back as, as when slavery still existed. Um, and, and of course, our concept of history, we always look for those people with the power, but the, the most faithful, faithful witness often came from those who are the least. And, and so it's not only about reconciliation, but again, it's about saying you actually have more to teach me about what it means to be a Christian than I do. Um, and so it's, it's giving up this, this place of saying, okay, I, I'm, I acknowledge that I was part of the oppressive regime here. This is what I'm going to do to fix you. No, you know, like think about theology. I mean, it's like there's African-American or black liberation theology, and that's a subset of theology. Well, what's theology? Well, it's white European theology. <laughs> exactly. Why, why, do, why does our wow. theology get to take the broad term? And so for me, one of the things I've done in that is wow. 
I have I have disciplined myself that I have to read like if I'm going to read books I read a lot I will read books by people who are from those groups at a higher ratio than I will say white males I don't totally exclude white male writers and I, I hope people read my book and I'm a white male writer but, you got to be careful there Jamie yeah, but I, I I would I would gladly lose a dozen, a hundred, yeah. a thousand book sales if more uh, Christians would read James Cone or Randy Woodley or you know uh, any number of uh, of these men and women who I think carry carry the torch of some of the more more beautiful and faithful uh, theology and practice that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the big thing for me is 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 taking the position of us of the disciple under the people who we've often viewed as being inferior wow wow Selah. that's really really good brother um paul walker on our facebook page when i put on a post saying that i was going to be talking to you about community and intentional community and some of these different things um one of the things that he asked us to talk about was the idea of community discipline mm. and i think this really ties in well with your with what you talk about in the book and of course this is straight from bonhoeffer talking about cheap grace versus real grace um but you talk about in the book how cheap grace is unwilling to confront, but that real grace confronts in love, but without judgment. That God accepts us as we are, but continues to mold us into the community, or like like you said, what like uh, Rene Girard talks about, interdividuals mm-hmm. that He's created us to be. So, with this idea of community discipline and how we walk this out, the idea that the, the things that Jesus talked about, the things that Paul talked about, in the idea of community discipline how that ties in with the idea of cheap grace versus real grace and why I know for so many of us, like I say, that have been burned by religion that are, that have just completely uh, unplugged ourselves from institutional structures. There's a real fear when we hear the word discipline yeah, because we automatically substitute the word control mm-hmm. for the word discipline. So can you talk some about that and maybe a healthy community discipline and how, how real grace uh, real grace is better than cheap grace, although it might be more costly. Yeah. Wow. Another book that I would make millions on if I had a good answer. <laughs> um, something that, that we haven't really mentioned here, but I, I think is important to mention is that uh, our community, well, intentional community is a big part of what we do. Uh, we are like the community. When I say our community, I'm talking about little flowers community. And that's actually, it's a church. It's a, it's a congregation. I, I'm somewhat air quoting cause we're, we're kind of unique and, and intentional community is just a value that many of our members voluntarily choose to participate in. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's a central aspect of who we are, but we are, we are just a church and, you know, I function as the pastor, but we, we are, we are quite different. Like, quick examples. I, I'm not paid as pastor. I'm, again, I'm not 100% against paid pastors, but in my context, I feel like I'm, my, my role as a pastor is just my gifting equal to all the other giftings, and, and I have no more authority in, in my community than anyone else uh, that isn't given to me by the community. Um, so, But being a church, then uh, the issues of, of, of dealing with church discipline come up. And I, I, would, I would say we're still learning and if anything, we we intentionally err on the side of of liberty over over discipline, um, but but at the same time we recognize we do need some sort of structure. We do need some sort of um, mechanism, even to protect people, uh, because people can be easily you know easily hurt. Again, a family isn't a 
a, a mechanistic institution, but it is an institution, right? It's an organic one. Right. And, and, and for a family to be healthy, there are, you know, structures to that. And so we've, we've really wrestled with that. And, and in our community where we have found the greatest, thus far, the greatest uh, contemporary example of what that looks like has been Alcoholics Anonymous. Hmm. And uh, the, the thing about Alcoholics Anonymous that is fascinating to us is that it is absolutely voluntary on every level. You know, like no one is forced to do anything. And it, 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 it's almost impossible to get kicked out of an AA group hmm. um, because their mind and their way of thinking is if you're willing to come, that's one step in the right direction. And, and B, you're only going to get out of it what you put into it. So, you know, what? Why would we want to discourage? I mean, you know, it might annoy us, but we can be annoyed. We were annoying ourselves. But uh, when it comes to when it comes to like the shoulds and should nots, there's a great quote by I can't remember who it was, but it was one of the early founding members of AA. They said that um, uh, everything in AA is voluntary, in the same way as pulling the ripcord is with skydiving. <laughs> it's absolutely voluntary. We're not going to kill you, but you, you might just end up killing yourself and it, it, it's semi-humorous and it's not said in a threatening way but it, it's basically saying that what i love is it's saying putting it in, in in the christian context the church doesn't have to exact consequences on people yeah we just have to tell people this way of life produces life this way of life doesn't um as best we we understand it and, and we will share that life with you if you choose to but you know um so it's it's more for for our community has more been people um, living with living with their consequences now, and I don't say we abandon their consequences because we we tend our response tends to be to render them and help them. Um, you know, it's like uh, we we read. I can't, I'm terrible with references. I'm always impressed by you guys spouting off references. But you know, <laughs> when, when it talks about you know like if if the person doesn't you know uh, repent, then treat them as you know an outsider yeah. or, you know, like uh, as a gentile, I can't remember what the language is. A tax it's like, collector. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Which is like, Oh, shunning. I'm like, well, wait a second. How did Jesus treat tax collectors? He loved on them. Crap. Exactly. 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 <laughs> so basically what, what saying that scripture is saying is treat them like a family member who should know better. And if they don't, then you go, okay, they don't know better. We got to treat them like someone who needs to needs to be taken in and loved. So it's actually an argument to greater grace, not lesser grace. Yeah. Wow. And so that's been that's been our approach, and and it's gotten us into trouble. Uh, maybe not even internally, but you know, uh, you you I th- was it you who shared on Facebook today, or Steve? I think it was Steve being tired of being called a heretic. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. talking about that. You know, and 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 you know, we've we've been we've been criticized in in some circles as well because you know, people who live with us or who come to our church aren't typical to churches, you know, and. And but at the same time, I would way rather err on the side of welcome and encounter Christ in the other than to to discipline. Now, there are times when, again, if, if we're needing to protect someone physically or or from uh, exploitation, we will put stronger boundaries. But for example, we had one gentleman in our community who didn't have great boundaries with with the women in our church, mm-hmm. and uh, and we finally had to say, listen, if you can't stop doing this. You, you can't come on the gatherings. Like he would go up, we'd meet in our house and he would go up and kind of corner them in their bedroom and talk to them. And he's like, Oh yeah, they totally into me. And it's like, that's not okay. <laughs> so we basically told him you, you, you're not, I'm telling you, you're willing to 
to make this right and, and change it, you're not welcome to come. Yeah. But at the same time, because he wasn't welcome to come, I met with him throughout the week. Because I was like, just because you can't come to – doesn't mean we're cutting you off. I, I, I'm going to still be your friend, still going to give you community. Um, I've heard stories about people who've, who've had sex offenders in their neighborhood who can't come to their church because there's children at the church and they're legally prohibited from coming. So a group of guys formed a house church just so that the sex offenders had a church. Like that to me, wow. That, wow. that's discipline because it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's taking, up, taking upon ourselves um, the suffering for the sake of the other. You know, you hear the – the phrase, take up your cross and follow me. And, and I always read that through the, the lens of, well, I'm a sinner and I need to die to my sins. And there's, a, there's an element of truth of that. But Jesus took up his cross for the sake of others. And I think that's in part what he's saying here. Take up your cross and follow me. Put, your, put yourself aside so that you can love others and take upon yourself the consequence and the cost of their sin if by doing so you have a chance of demonstrating the love of God. Man. Oh, that's Man. so hard to do. Man, that's so that resonates so deeply with me though. I mean, what that it's so it's so hard to do, but it resonates with your heart. You know, mm. you know you I mean, you just hear that and and it rings true. Mm. I mean, that's really what, you know, when we get down to it, that's what the cost is. Mm. It's taking on the consequences of others. I mean, I love the way you said that that I their the consequences for their sin become our consequences mm-hmm. because we've chosen to love them. Yeah. Uh, as you were talking, it just hit me, you know, when we talk about discipline, so many times we've heard that word in a negative light. We have a really negative connotation of what discipline is. It's really, it, you know, it's corrective, it's harsh, it's, it's, you know, retributive so many times. And more and more, I think that word really just means loving instruction. Mm. I mean, I think about, I have a, I have a three and a four year old son and, um, you know, they they're all the time crossing transgressing boundaries, right? I mean, yeah. all the time on a daily, nightly, hourly, minutely <laughs> basis. Yeah. And yet I don't find myself very seldomly. Do I get angry with them? Um, you know, most of the time it's just loving instruction. Oh, you know, you probably don't want to jump off that piece of furniture because you're probably going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, you probably don't want to get your brother in the headlock and slam him <laughs> on the ground because, you're probably going to get hurt, right? <laughs> so it's this idea of loving instruction and not not this really harsh thing. And I think so much of that is separating the concepts of God that we've that we've put together or had put together for us um, in evangelicalism of God being wrathful and God being loving, and therefore you know you mix him together and he's got multiple personality <laughs> syndrome and you know, really separating out that wrathful God and saying, wait, this is an illusion. This wrathful God that we've all talked about doesn't exist. And therefore, when you take that away, you have to redefine concepts like discipline. Yeah. Because we've defined that in in the shadow of a wrathful God. Absolutely. So in the shadow of a loving God, all of a sudden discipline means something totally different. Yeah. Well, and again, looking at AA for, for us, and we've been going through the 12 steps over the last several months in our small group just to explore what wisdom we might glean from them. As an aside, um, our, our church has a 12 foundational values that govern how we structure ourselves and how we function. And they're just adaptations of the 12 traditions of AA. And so we thought, well, we're going to go and look at the 12 steps. Um, but we were talking about the concept of sponsorship within AA, you know, an alcoholic gets a sponsor. And a sponsor is someone who is generally speaking, not, all, not always, but generally speaking, someone who's just a little further along 
the path to recovery than you are. They're not an expert. They're not a, a counselor. They're just someone who's, who's a little further ahead and, and kind of knows what you might expect. And, and yet at the same time, they're one drink away from being at day one, you know? Wow. You know, and so it's like if, if someone falls off the wagon after 20 years and comes back and the kid who's been sober for a week is now a week ahead of him, that's not a condemning thing. It, it, it does put in light, you know, it does demonstrate that there are consequences to choices, but it, it, that happens within a community where it's like, well, that's why you're here and we're going to get you back to your 20 years. But there's no sense of progress that somehow I've been a Christian all my life, so you will never attain my spiritual maturity. It's like, I'm, right. I'm one mistake away from, from screwing it up too. And, and the, and, and the guy who's been a Christian for a week could, and, and often does have have the wisdom that we all need. And, and so that's, again, the AA has that sense of mutuality built into it that is so healthy. Well, and I think this is why, to be honest with you, this is why at least I know I can speak for Steve and myself when I say this is one of the reasons that we've been so turned off to institutional forms of Christianity mm-hmm. or the, the pyramid scheme within Christianity and mm-hmm. this idea that there are people that should reside at the top and people mm-hmm. at the bottom and, you know, never should the twain meet. Um, because the idea of the people at the top, they should always be at the top. They're always the teachers. They're always the instructors. They're always the, the example, the people at the bottom are always the ones who are there to receive. Mm. And the idea that that's really unhealthy, it's, it's unbiblical a, but it's totally unhealthy because a, we need each other. Like, like you said, me as a white middle-class American, I need that person in the third world mm. that's worked in a sweatshop mm-hmm. or I need that. I need that African-American person that has been racially profiled by police officers mm. pulling them over, you know, at nine o'clock at night. I need those people. And so, yeah. you know, when you begin to get an idea of that, of the, of this mutuality and this egalitarianism, then those power structures really begin to fall. Yeah. And I know f- for me, I think this is where, and I know, I know you probably are head in this direction a lot too, but you know, for a long time I've talked about, um, really my, my own anarchistic tendencies. Mm. And even though I don't know that I could call myself, I, I would call myself an ideological anarchist. I, I'm not, I don't make a very good practical one. <laughs> I, I'm right um, there with you. I, I feel like I, I don't have enough street cred to call myself. An exactly. Anarchist. Exactly. I don't have any street cred, but I sure <laughs> would like to think I, I like to fancy myself an anarchist anyway. But, um, in saying that really that impetus first came in um within the church itself and seeing firsthand and being on the other end of the power structures and being the powerful one and seeing just how how strange it was that that someone I, I mean at the time I was probably gosh I don't know 30 years old or something like that and here I am 30 years old telling people that are 50 and 60 week after week after week how they need to walk with Jesus and never listening to them Never, never hearing mm. from them, you know, and in saying that more and more, I'm, I'm seeing the way all of our, uh, all of our structures are organized are from the top down. Mm. And so more and more, I'm realizing that there's a necessity both in our everyday lives in our ecclesiastical lives in our community lives uh, to, to really have this mutuality, to have this sharing. Mm. So in your own community with, uh, and, and you know, 
to be quite honest with you, Jamie, five years ago, I probably would have been uncomfortable with someone calling themselves a pastor <laughs> because I was just, you know, I, I'm just burnt out. I'm still not in a place where, you know, I, I still am not there with the whole yep. idea of there being some people here and some people there. But for you, how does that play out day to day in your community as far as you being you you looking or, or people looking at you as a pastoral role and still yet um, having a mutuality in the community? Uh, we, we, our value number eight that I, I was talking about those values, our value number eight, we say this and it's going to sound ideological, then I'll unpack it a little bit. But it says every member is called to lead or be led with with respect to their unique gifting, calling, maturity, experience, and character, where all things being equal, no role is privileged above another. Um, and, and essentially, we, we've embraced that intentionally for, for, to kind of address what you're, what you're saying. I, my impulse is to not want the title of pastor, and I resisted the title of pastor for the longest time. And then people in our community said, well, what if it's not a title? What if it's just you're, that's your gift. You're, you're good at teaching and, 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 um, you know, and, and we are going to collectively give you, choose to give you the authority in this area because that's where your gifting is. Uh, and, and there, there are checks and balances in there and, and you function in that role. And this person here, you know, they're, they're the authority when it comes to how does it, how do you welcome people into your home? We have some people in our church who are just, are unbelievably gifted at making people feel welcome. Uh, absolute strangers. They'll get on the bus and they'll get off the bus 10 minutes later with friends who come over to their home within a day or two. You know, like it's crazy, wow. you know, and we submit to them because in, 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 in that area, they are the authority. So the authority and the leadership that we function in our church is not based on position, but it's based more circumstantially in this time. We recognize there's a need and we recognize that there's a strength and, and, uh, we will, we will, you know, recognize uh, that person in that in that time in that place as the need arises. Um, but I, I held the community decided that that I should hold on to the title of pastor, almost as an intentional uh, attempt to subvert that whole model. You know, to say that we don't have to abandon the the vocation of pastor and the language around it because of its abuses. Um, but rather we need to reclaim it and, 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 and model. Now I'm not saying we are the perfect model of it. We struggle too. Um, but, but even in my role as a teacher in the community, you come to little flowers and when it comes to the time we we sit in the round and yes, there are times where I bring teaching because I'm, I, I, that's one of my strengths. My mind is, is, you know, head, heart and hands. My head is my more strong point, you know? Um, but I, a main role that I have in that time of teaching is to facilitate conversation. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's not just me communicating the truth, but me sparking conversation uh, out of which um, the community discerns together the, the, the meaning of scripture, the will of the will of God. It's, it's my, my, I could use my gifting to say, this is the way things are. And you need to believe it. But I choose to, again, discipline. I choose to discipline myself to use my gifting instead to facilitate the opportunity to present people with information, let them wrestle with it. And, and, and my book, the cost of community, I, 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 I wish I could list, you know, 20 other people as co-authors because the, the stuff that I gleaned from, from the, the sermon on the Mount was a result of our community, community sharing it together. Yeah, um, yeah. 
You know, the value number four in our community is the primary place to discern God's will is in the context of Christ-committed community with the Holy Spirit. And it's like, what we mean by that is, yes, scholarship is important. You know, I'm hearing Michael Harden saying, don't forget scholarship, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't 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 pull your ignorance, um, and and I, I agree with them. But at the same at the same time, that scholarship comes in as as one gift within many, uh, where we collectively discern together. And so in our community, we we attempt to to flatten that. And 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 you know you you sometimes hear pastors say, "My job is to work myself out of a job," which. Sounds nice, but no one actually does that. No one does it, though. Yeah, but, but <laughs> I've heard I, that all the time, but no yeah. one ever did it. But see, I don't. I don't actually think that's 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 healthy because, you know, the pastoral role, the pastoral gifting, is important, and some people have it. Uh, I think we're all called to it. Some people are are more specifically called to it than others. Rather, if if I use any languages, my my role as a pastor has been to to disempower my privilege. To, to continually make wow, my my privilege to be less critical to the the survival and the importance of the church, um, because we're even though we're all idealistically mm. saying we want to have a flat surface, we've all been raised where that isn't the case, and it, it is not uncommon for circumstances to come up that are difficult, and people go, "Well, Jamie's the pastor; he'll deal with it," uh, or "I will want to use my privilege to make a decision because I think the group is making the wrong decision." So we we stumble, but but we we do say. You know, like I, one of my jobs that I say in my job description is to disempower Man. the role my privilege has in, in that. And, and um, that's hard, but it's so good. Dude, that is, uh, that's a Selah. I mean, that's like, that's something I almost want to go right down and just put it on my refrigerator to, that my job is to disempower my privilege. I think that's a Christian job right there. I think that's a, and I think maybe what you're saying, Jamie, what I'm hearing you say is that um, in the way that many people have chosen, you know, there, there's many people I think that are in the body of Christ that have wanted to let go of the language of Christian mm-hmm. or the language of evangelical, the, yeah. those terms. Yeah. And, and I totally empathize and yeah. I probably find myself more on, on that side of the divide. And yeah, I see other people who are going, you know, I'm not willing to give up on the word Christian or I'm not willing to give up on the word evangelical. And I hear you saying the same thing with pastors. There's some yeah. of us that have given up on the term yeah. and there's some of us that are wanting to, um, to resuscitate it in a healthy way. And yeah. so while I find myself maybe on the other side of it, I can totally respect what you're saying because I think that's a healthy, I, th- I think that's a really healthy choice. Well, it's kind of funny too, because within our church, it's about me disempowering my privilege, but outside of our church, I'm a high school grad with no seminary training and and so in the wider church culture they're like how dare you call yourself a pastor you know right right um, uh, we we actually had a, a a sister church in our denomination this has changed since but early on who they had a gathering of pastors from the area come together and and one of my friends was like why 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 isn't jamie here and the and, and the response was well we're this is a gathering for overt churches and, and i'm like oh it's like <laughs> what I guess that makes us a subvert church. So subvert, oh, I, I'll, wow. I'll take that. But it, it's just you know, so it, it's funny how within my community I'm, I'm I'm fighting to to subvert my own privilege. But outside of our context in the wider Christian culture, uh, that's seen as that's seen as a uh, a liability. And I've been encouraged. Well, get your credentials. Get you know get your degree and something like that. Again, I'm not against getting training. I, I'm dedicated to study, and and someday I might actually do that formally. But uh, 
But this idea that my credibility as a pastor is dependent upon these things, I think that's dangerous. And, and, well, and, and Jamie, let me just echo what you're saying because that is, that's something I've really struggled with. Um, I have so much respect for so many people uh, that, that do have, you know, maybe eight years of theological training you know, six years of theological training, 10 years of theological training. I have tons of respect for that, tons of respect for those people. And yet simultaneously, I think that there can be, I'm not saying it's it's necessitated by that, but I think there can be a sense of what we're talking about, a sense of privilege mm. where my voice should count for something more because I have a few letters that go by my name. <laughs> yeah. And while I am 100%, um, I, I'm 100% in agreement that we don't want to just get together and talk about a passage that no one's actually read and just talk about how we feel about the passage (laughs) or, you know, all of these kinds of things that go on in Bible studies across the country that just make us all want to hurl, you know, (laughs) where you just go, my gosh, this is just, this is totally idiotic. You know, I'm, I'm not for that. And simultaneously we have to be so careful that we don't ostracize the people that actually Jesus seemed to not only empower, but seemed to prefer, mm. which were the ones that didn't have yeah. the theological training. I mean, he's, yeah. he's, he's telling, you know, I, I think about like the, the centurion and the faith of the centurion. Now Jesus says, I've not found this kind of faith in all of Israel. So mm. it's like, he's saying, I've not found, I've not found this, a theology that's this good. Not only in the Pharisees who are theologically trained or the Sadducees who are are theologically trained, I've not found it in the entire country of Israel. Mm. You know, I'm I'm looking at a Syrophoenician woman or a Canaanite, you know, the Canaanite (laughs) woman or, you know, a centurion. And I'm saying these people who are pagans sometimes get it more correct, more, you know, closer to the truth than what the theologically trained can. And I think it's such a, I think in our culture, especially there, and and this is another one of maybe um, where my ideological anarchism comes into play, (laughs) that there is this sense of competition Mm -hmm. that is inherent in our society that permeates its way into the church through things like, sometimes through theological training, where we can begin to get competitive about our knowledge, competitive about what we know and how many things we've had published or how many, you know, or I I can do this with the podcast, Jamie, I'll be the first to admit there's such a temptation when, when you get into the podcasting world and you start meeting all these other people that do the same thing. If, if you sit there and look at those statistics and page loads and listeners and likes and all that kind of stuff, you can begin to compare yourself with what someone else is doing somewhere else and begin to judge your quote unquote success yeah. by how they're doing it. And I'm finding myself more and more not wanting to do that. And simultaneously yeah. this part of your flesh that wants to creep out and compare yourselves with others. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's such a, well, and, and, and again, with, with respect to formal education, again, I, I, I have great respect for people who have it, and I someday may have it myself. But we also have to recognize that that a lot of the institutions of of, of higher education are bound up to the very economics we we critiqued earlier on, and that complicates that complicates the capacity of that institution to 
you know, I, I mean, it's the same thing, similar dynamic at times to when Christianity became, you know, a state religion under Constantine. There's there suddenly you have the, a conflict with speaking truthfully against the institution of which you're now a part. Um, and that's I, I and there's there's a lot of alternative uh, alternative uh systems out there that I would, you know, I, I would highly recommend. And I'm thinking, um, are you familiar with Ched Myers? Yeah. Just, I, you know, I've not read any of his stuff, but I'm very familiar with who you're talking about. If, you know, if, if you and your listeners go to his website, chedmyers.com, uh, he's got a ton of papers available that he's written free online. And one of them is called Between the Seminary, the Sanctuary, and the Streets, Reflections mm. on Alternative Theological Education. And and I love that, 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 <laughs> That trinity of, of focuses he has there. He says, you know, there's the the institution of of, of higher education. It's important. There is the church. That the, these two th- these two groups need to be in relationship with one another. The church needs to be forming the nature of the seminary, and the seminary needs to be speaking life and wisdom and truth into the church. But they also both need to be in relationship with the streets. In other words, the world beyond the boundaries of, of Christian subculture. And 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 and, and if they are not informing each other all three are going to be bankrupt and um it's a great short article i highly write it's five pages long highly recommended again it's between the seminary the sanctuary and the streets by chad myers if you if you googled that you'd get it i've got to find out more about chad myers i keep i cannot tell you how many times i have heard people refer to binding the strong man his commentary on mark oh yes Um, (laughs) over and over and over again i hear that book referred to yeah, I, I asked for it uh, as a Christmas gift several years ago, and I received it, and then I didn't realize that it's like a massive tone. <laughs> it's it's a commitment to read that, but it's a well worth the well worth the time. Yeah, wow. So, Jamie, in in uh, wrapping up our part of the podcast, tell us about you, you had some exciting news this week. I watched your YouTube video um, oh, just yes. a few days ago where you made an exciting announcement that you have just gotten. Uh, a new book deal that you're going to be publishing or that's going to be published in the next, I guess, right, right around a year from now. Can you tell us some about that? Well, yeah, right around a year from now, if I can get cracking and, and start writing, I, 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 I'll quickly say this. I love to write, but my primary, my primary calling is to my community. And so uh, it does, it doesn't happen as fast as I'd like at times, but yeah, I I'm, I'm working on a book with uh, paraclete press um, tentatively called the path, to resurrection, and uh, again, it, I, I people think it's funny. A Mennonite that's always drawing on Catholic saints, but I'm drawing in this book on the life of Saint Patrick, especially his conversion, to look at um, the 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 stages not not the five easy steps or formula, but the stages of spiritual uh, development that seem to be patterned in in the lives of people throughout Scripture and church history um, that move us from from uh, individuals in in isolated pretense uh into communities of 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 mission and, and justice uh and and so i look at 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 five different stages um i draw a great a great deal from uh the late m scott peck who's uh, most well known for his book the road less traveled um uh, but also just drawing from uh, scripture and the lives of saints. A lot of people ask me after the cost of community, okay, well, the cost of community is, is kind of like the manifesto, uh, Jesus' manifesto for his people. But how do we become people who actually would live this out? Mm-hmm. And so this book talks about how do, we, how do we actually take steps to move from 
being isolated as individuals, living behind our masks of fear and, and, and shame and, and then move, you know, one step at a time through this process of transformation where we come out the other side as, as communities uh, uh, bound together by God's spirit and his mission of shalom for the world. So I'm excited about it. Um, I, I, uh, I just need to write it. So we're, t- <laughs> so we're talking about um, probably December of 14 or January 15, something like that. Yeah. I, I, I think January of 2015 will be an optimistic, an optimistic goal. Um, we have a lot going on between now and then we're uh, we have a peace and justice internship that we run here for three months every year and uh, in the community. And my wife and I are in the process of adopting another child, which awesome is exciting, but it is a lot of work. And uh, uh, so, so I'm hoping January, 2015, if my publisher is so- listening, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, in the meantime, our listeners need to go check out the cost of community, Jesus, St. Francis and life in the kingdom. Jamie, it has been an honor, a privilege, and a great, great time all around. Oh, the privilege is mine. I love the podcast. I love you guys. You're, you're familiar voices in my day, so I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation half as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, I just thoroughly enjoyed my time with Jamie. What a great guy. So many things he said, so many so many ideas that he shared just really resonated with me and where I'm at. So many of the topics of the issues of justice, of community, of actually living out our faith, of moving beyond theology into not just orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, or maybe for us it wouldn't be orthopraxy, <laughs> but maybe just a uh, following Jesus. Just what does it mean to follow Jesus? Awesome conversation. I want to encourage you to check out his book, the Cost of Community, Jesus, St. Francis, and Life in the Kingdom, published by InterVarsity Press. Great book by a great guy. Really looking forward to having more conversations with Jamie in the future. And really enjoyed having Jamie on the podcast. It was just so neat because he's not just a guest on the podcast, but he's a, an ardent listener of the podcast. He's been listening to us for several years, and we've been communicating with him a lot on the Facebook page um, through messaging just a really, really great guy. Jamie, love you, bro. You're just really a inspiration to me and thoroughly enjoyed my time with you. Um, if you'd like to connect with Jamie, you can do so on the, uh, on the podcast page. Um, he's actually a member of our group. And I just want to encourage you, if you'd like to sign up for, to be a member of our group on Facebook, you can do that. We still have our Facebook page where we post our episodes, but most of the conversation now goes on on actually on the group page, the Facebook Beyond the Box group page. Um, You can sign up for our page. You can like our page, excuse me, by going to facebook.com slash beyond the box. You can like us there. If you want to join our group, it's, that sounds so exclusive, doesn't it? But it's actually, it's really easy. You just go onto Facebook, you ask to join, and we automatically put you in the group. So um, it might take us an hour or two to, to get you to join, to get you in there, but we will definitely do so. If you go to facebook.com slash groups slash BTB podcast discussion, that's the location of our Facebook group. We have a lot of people there that it's just a very active group of people that people post different ideas that they want to talk about, different topics of discussion. We have some excellent conversations that go on there. And the great thing about it is there's really no topic off limits. 
I've seen all sorts of stuff posted there, and I am just so thrilled about that. Steve and I have just continually talked about how awesome it is that we're seeing this community really take off as just this organic thing that people are beginning to know each other. As a matter of fact, I saw a couple of members of the Beyond the Box group who got to meet each other in person this week. That was so cool. People that met each other from listening to Beyond the Box. We love that. We just, Steve and I, we we love having these podcast conversations, but we love this community. We're just so glad that this is just a real place that people feel safe to share their hearts, to share their outside the box ideas, to share their in the box ideas, and to really get feedback from other people. It's a safe place. When you put something on that Facebook group page, it doesn't go out into your feed. It's private, so it's only seen by the group. And um, it's it's just a really good place to be able to deconstruct and reconstruct your faith. So I want to encourage you to join that if you get a chance. Um, you can also go to our, fa- our excuse me our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com. That's where you can actually stream our episodes and listen to them directly. You can go to our idea submission page. Um, you can use our call me widget on there. I was just drawing a blank there. Excuse me. <laughs> you can go to on the right hand side of the page. You'll see a little call me widget. If you click that and type in your name and phone number, our answering service will actually call you back so that you can leave a message. If you have a voice comment, an idea submission that you want to leave, feel free to do that. If you want to call us directly, you can do that as well. The number is 626-246-6269. That's 626-24-NO-BOX. You can leave a message there. And while you're there, if you'll just simply say, Hi, this is, and leave your name, and you're listening to Beyond the Box. So, hi, my name is Ray, and you're listening to Beyond the Box. We would love to throw you in an episode. So if you get a chance to do that, that would be great. If you want to sign up for our Twitter feed, twitter.com slash podcast. Um, lots of ways to connect with us. We just hope you do. Uh, we just thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Thank you for being part of this community and Jamie Arpenrisi. Thank you so much for sharing your heart with us, your time. Um, just really love what you're doing there in Manitoba, uh, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and just really love your heart and, uh, just really enjoyed this time with you and look forward to many more. And I look forward to connecting with you guys online until next time. This is Ray. I'll be joined by Steve very soon. And this is beyond the box. Have a great week. <laughs>